We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Anne Black, who is standing uh, for Labour's National Executive Committee and from 2000 to 2018 was a member of uh, the NEC and was chair of the NEC from 2009 to 2010. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, So the first question that I'd like uh, to ask is for those uh, people who are listening who might not be uh, fully aware of what the NEC is and what its role is, uh, could you explain that? Okay, um, the NEC is really concerned with party management. That's finances, administration, rules, procedures, running conferences, campaigns, selections, dealing with complaints, staffing matters. It's not primarily a policy-making body, although it does oversee a policy-making process currently through the National Policy Forum. Um, to what extent do you think that the NEC has to ensure that it's independent uh, from the leader's office? Or, or do you think it has to work in, in, in tandem with the leadership? What, what, what do you think the relationship should be? I was thinking about this. And when you say independent, it suggests that there are two separate power structures, uh, which, of course, may tend to become at odds with each other. Um, My view is that the two are complementary and Mm. should work together as far as possible uh, in that the leader and the shadow cabinet will take the lead on policy. And actually, that's particularly important when Labour is in government and uh, the the Labour leader, the Prime Minister, does not actually have time to convene the 33 NEC members before saying anything about some disaster that's happened overnight. And the NEC is there to provide the infrastructure uh, to support the leader and to also support campaigning to win at every other level, Scotland, Wales, local elections. Where there have been tensions in the past, it's usually been where the leader um, takes a policy line that causes some NEC members to be uneasy. And it causes tensions from the NEC side where the leader has um, plans for campaigning, particularly in general elections, which are extremely expensive and where the budget doesn't actually allow them. So, but if there's goodwill, if the two sides are working together, then all of that can be negotiated. Um, now, as I mentioned uh, at the start, um, you uh, served on the NEC um, for a very long time under uh, different leaders of the Labour Party. Um, how did uh, the relationship um, with each leader to the NEC change on, on the time you were uh, a member? And do you think that it's important that each leader ensures that there is a, a strong um, Uh, link uh, with the NEC, whether in government or or, or out of government? Well, during my time on the NEC, uh, starting with Tony Blair and then Gordon Brown, they tended to come to NEC meetings at the beginning. The NEC met every two months. 
um, they would come and do a leader's report, take questions, and those could be extensive. We could, any member of the NEC could ask them anything. They would respond, and then they would usually not stay for the whole of the rest of the meeting, uh, partly because they were also running the country. Uh, under Ed Miliband, that was more or less the same. Um, Jeremy Corbyn took more of an interest in everything that the NEC was doing and tended to stay through the whole meeting. And in some ways, that was good. It um, showed that the NEC was valued and appreciated and had an important role. Whereas if you look back at Alistair Campbell's diaries, for instance, you'll very rarely find any mention of the NEC at all. So that was good. Tony Blair tended to, and Gordon Brown, tended to come if there was something specific they wanted the NEC to agree to, particularly on uh, party reform, party structures, and um, a couple of individual cases, but generally they would see their role as separate, which as I said, complementary. Um, turning uh, to the uh, recent general election where of course uh, Labour didn't um, do well, lost seats. Um, what are your thoughts as to why Labour lost the last election? Okay, I'm, first I would really recommend a report by a group called Labour Together who have been working on this since the election and have produced the report. If you Google Labour Together report, they've done an analysis of not only the 2019 election, but going back the last 20 years. And it's clear that a lot of uh, the reasons um, date back that long. We were losing votes in the red wall seats through the 2000s and onwards. And the assumption was that, uh, well, these people didn't have anywhere else to go. A lot of them stayed home, but then they did find somewhere else to go. They found UKIP, they found Brexit, and they found Tories under Boris Johnson. So, but it, it goes back a long way. On the 2019 election, the contrast with 2017 is very striking. In 2017, we did a lot better than we expected. And um, that was very pleasing. So when it came to 2019, the assumption was, okay, we can do 2017, but better. There were three areas where I think we went wrong. In 2017, the manifesto had a few clear pledges which everybody could remember and which everyone supported, and they were costed. The Tories had a manifesto which was the only numbers were the page numbers. Uh, part of its key um, theme was under <laughs> Theresa May removed shortly into the campaign. She rolled back on the dementia tax. They also pledged to abolish the triple lock on pensions, which is when your core vote is in their 70s. It's not a very smart thing to do. So Labour scored ahead on that. On Brexit in 2017, we were uh, still at a stage where Labour could essentially convince both Leave voters and Remain voters that we were on their side. And to some extent we were, because the way things would play out was very unclear. So we got support from both sides. By 2019, 
that had simply become untenable. We ended up trying to please both Leave and Remain voters and ended up pleasing neither. And I don't think anyone has an easy answer to that policy. Uh, I would just add that this was not Keir Starmer's Brexit policy, as it's described some by some people. Uh, it was a policy agreed by the Labour Party conference, agreed by the Shadow Cabinet, and promoted by Jeremy Corbyn, and it was Jeremy Corbyn's policy equally. But we couldn't, we were in an impossible situation, we just lost to both sides. And third, on the leadership issue, in 2017, it's fair to say that expectations of Jeremy Corbyn were not high. He not only met those expectations, he exceeded them by miles. He was a terrific campaigner, compared again to Theresa May, who seemed to shrink at the first contact with any form of humanity. So the Tories, of course, never made the same, don't make the same mistake twice. And what they had, if you want three words that got the election won for them, it's like they won the Brexit referendum with take back control. They won the general election with three words, get Brexit done. And Labour never had those three words. Just going back to the manifesto, um, there is one thing in it which I think would be a lot more um, acceptable now, and that is free broadband for everyone. It was kind of a, what is this at the time? But now, with it being the only way that children are able to keep up with school, uh, I think free broadband could be a very much a plus point. And maybe it will be in our next manifesto for real. Um, now, you've obviously mentioned uh, Brexit there uh, quite a bit. Do you think that now, uh, whether uh, the, the government get a deal or whether we go through a, a, a no Brexit uh, transition. Do you think that it will still be a, as a pressing issue at the next election or do you think that it won't be discussed as much in as it was in the past uh, two elections? Well, it's very hard to look four years ahead, uh, which we're, we're talking about another four years and by then we will be out. I... Uh, think it would be a mistake for and it would be not only a mistake but also absolutely fruitless for Labour to try and um, put more obstacles in the way. We put all the obstacles in the way that we could along with the Lib Dems and the SNP and the CBI and a whole lot of other groups and it failed. We are now out um, and that's settled. I, uh, I know there are people who think that we should immediately campaign to start campaigning to rejoin. I don't think that is sensible um, politically or in any other way. Uh, we've left and that's it. The main thing I'd pick up on though is to make sure that the uh, problems which arise from the coronavirus um, crisis are kept separate from the problems arising from the way we leave um, the European Union. Well, we have left but the, the, the final deal, what, whatever happens on the 31st of December. Um, I suppose the other consequences in Scotland, and I 
when I'm going through why we lost the election, I should, of course, have added Scotland. And with independence, support for independence growing in Scotland, uh, as Scottish people want more control over the their own affairs with regard to coronavirus and with regard to Brexit. It's hard to see a way through for Labour, and it's even hard to see a way that Labour can return to government without Scotland. Uh, just turning back um, to your um, NEC campaign, uh, if you are elected, what will be your three main priorities? First, I'd want to re-engage with members. I know very little about what's happening, been happening on the NEC since I left. Uh, and I would also want to consult members and engage them more fully. And um, actually, the current situation, I think I will probably visit more CLPs during the NEC campaign and after remotely than I was ever able to do in person when it's the question of what's the last train back from um, you know, somewhere out in Essex or wherever. So I think it will be possible to engage more fully. Uh, I would also support the leadership um, in a constructive way. And I have done that with every leader from Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn onwards. Uh, even when I disagreed with them, I think the approach to take is not to undermine the leader publicly. It's to persuade them that perhaps they ought to look at an issue differently, privately. But if people... I have some sympathy with members who complain about MPs and others who were trying to undermine Jeremy from the start. I think they were wrong to do it. But... Now, it's equally important that those people do not repeat the mistake by trying to undermine Keir Starmer from the start. So it's two years since I've been on the NEC, and a lot of people have changed. I would need to work my way back in, but I would be a constructive supporter of the leadership. And finally, I would like to have a look at finances, uh, both overall and in particular membership subscriptions. Paying more than £50 a year is a lot uh, for the standard rate. And also local parties get very little of the money that members contribute when they pay their subscriptions. The NEC promised to review all that in 2018 as part of the Party Democracy Review. I haven't seen any signs that they've done it yet. And I think they need to. Because constituencies now have, they have three times the membership that they did in 2011 when current arrangements were set up. And um, they're struggling to hold meetings, to campaign, to send delegates. And it's in, I know where um, all that stuff came from. And I think I'm in a good position to try and find a better settlement for, for members and for local parties. What do you feel were your greatest achievements or the achievements that you're most proud of whilst previously serving on the NEC? Pioneering reporting back to members. And now everything is on Twitter and online um, anyway, so it's not so notable. But certainly when I started doing reports back in 2000, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, and quite a few people said to me that I really shouldn't be putting stuff out there. I really did try very hard to um, 
to be honest with members, but not write anything which would create hostile headlines in the Daily Mail. Uh, and to, to a large extent, I exceeded, I succeeded, I think. So um, that was one thing. I achieved one member, one vote ballots for the National Policy Forum elections. That took 10 years from, well, 12 years, really, from 1997 onwards. Uh, and it started from a time when the left of the party actually opposed Omar. Uh, they preferred election by conference delegates because the left used to have a majority at conference. But anyway, by 2009, um, the left was on board and crucially the trade unions were on board. We got it through in 2009 and... Um, against the recommendation of the NEC, which was actually not, not as easy as it sounds. And the final one, I'd say, is uh, it certainly felt like an achievement at the time, was um, helping to get Diane Abbott onto the ballot paper for the leadership in 2010, um, working with Tony Lloyd, who was the chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party then. Uh, we did a lot of lobbying of MPs, um, about the importance of having a broad range of uh, politics and also, of course, um, age, gender, background, ethnicity and so forth. And um, that resulted in David Miliband, although he was a candidate, actually being one of the people who put Diane Abbott onto the ballot. Uh, some people have kind of question that because they say, well, it opened the door to Jeremy Corbyn winning in 2015 uh, because it gave people the impression that you could have a left-wing candidate on the ballot, but actually it didn't matter because it would broaden the debate, but nobody would, they wouldn't get elected. I think that's actually patronising and wrong, and it was still good to have a broad range of um, views among the candidates then, and it was in 2015, and in the end the members decide. So uh, I certainly felt it was an achievement at the time. Um, how uh, did you feel in uh, 2018 um, when you lost re-election uh, to the so-called JC9, the uh, slate of candidates that were seen as being uh, very supportive of uh, Jeremy Corbyn? I was... A bit surprised to, to come 13th because I had a lot of nominations from CLPs, from local parties, almost as many as JC9. Uh, so I expected it to be closer. I think um, probably different people go to meetings and other people that have been around for a long time. And even if they didn't agree with me, Politically, they knew that I was accountable and told them what was going on. I was disappointed. Um, there's sort of a bit where you go through and there's this gap in my life where I cross out penciled in meetings and so forth. But in the end, um, if you support one member, one vote, it means one member, one vote. So um, uh, you accept the results because that's what members have voted for. I do think one unfortunate aspect is that the NEC became very, the constituency section became dominated by one um, element of the party. 
up until 2016, there was a very wide range of views in the CLP section, ranging from Christine Shawcroft, Mark Seven, Ellie Reeves, myself, Luke Akers. And I thought that was healthy because it meant that every member of the party, no matter where they stood personally, could see somebody who would reflect their views at the NEC. Uh, in 2016, I was still on the, um, the um, left slate, although uh, not all of them were happy about that by the end of the election. Uh, and in 2018, it was, of course, a clean sweep. I'm hoping that uh, using STV, single transferable vote, for counting the results will produce more political diversity and it can be me it can be somebody else but whoever uh, I think it would be good to have a wider range of views. Um, now we've obviously um, uh, discussed uh, the leadership and um, you've said that you uh, obviously want to be uh, uh, loyal but, but um, critical at, at the same time, uh, constructively critical. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Keir Starmer's leadership so far? I think he's doing reasonably well in quite extraordinary circumstances. And the, the word unprecedented is overused, but the current situation is unprecedented. It's difficult for an opposition because it, you can't get cut through when government spokespeople are on the daily briefings so all you see is is government spokespeople hopefully that will put some people off but it's very difficult for for, for, for opposition parties to be visible it's also difficult because at a time of national crisis how um how much do you all pull together in the quotes war against the virus not that i like that phrase but anyway uh, because if you're if you oppose for opposition's sake, you're seen as um, just undermining the efforts to try and get through this, and um, it's not seen as helpful. I think he's broadly got it right. And also, interestingly, if he says something which is not quite taken the right way, he, he's not afraid to say, "Well, I could have phrased that better and phrase it better." Uh, Labour has made some achievements on getting the NHS surcharge waived for NHS workers. And we all need to recognise that Boris Johnson has a majority of 80. He will be able to do what he wants for the next four years. And that whatever policies Labour comes out with, whether it's um, carbon neutral by 2030 or whether it's scrapping universal credit or... Um, whatever we can't actually do that unless we're in government and it's uh, a little bit of time and, and patience so if there is um an upside and when sixty thousand people have died unnecessarily uh, i actually don't really talk like talking about any upsides but Keir Starmer has inherited a very difficult situation within the party uh, with reports, leaked reports, with divisions, with um, unhappiness, with a lot of polarisation at every level. 
And to some extent, he's been able to deal with that without it being um, published, publicized every day. If you think about the leaks report and how that would have led the media headlines for, for days, if not weeks, without coronavirus, um, if he's able to deal with the worst stuff and get resolution and get the NEC to sign up, then hopefully uh, members will, who I think overwhelmingly still want to elect Labour to government, will hopefully come together. You mentioned, obviously, the uh, leak report there, and, of course, there have um, been other internal issues. Uh, to what extent do you think that the Labour Party needs internal reform? Well, the internal... The report is, in some ways, it's only sort of tangentially about... It's partly about structures, but it's also about named individuals. And if the... You know, if it hadn't been for the treachery of a few people at the top of the party, we'd be li- have been living in a socialist paradise for the last three years. Uh, but it's all about structures. Um, every leader since I've been on the NEC and before has come in with big plans for party reform. Tony Blair had partnership in power. Gordon Brown had extending and renewing party democracy. Ed Miliband had the refounding Labour, and then he had another go with the Collins report, which, um, again, you know, if you want to look at Jeremy Corbyn's road to power, that's a big step along it. Jeremy Corbyn had, I think, Tom Watson's review of, it was called something like Make Members Matter, I can't even remember, uh, and then the Party Democracy Review in 2018. I'd say the last thing we need is another year where the NEC produces a bunch of documents on structures and we spend an entire year looking at um, internal organisation rather than outward campaigning with the public. So I would just pick on a few areas. The party's policy-making structures, the National Policy Forum, um, has been operating for 22 years and it still isn't working. And a sign of its importance is that um, I was the chair, elected chair of the National Policy Forum and I left that when I left the NEC in 2018 and I haven't been replaced, So, um, which is interesting. So there needs to be some way of engaging members in policymaking so that they are listened to. We need to streamline procedures. Part of the reason we lost the election was that, well, that we had problems was that we hadn't got candidates in dozens of seats because the NEC prioritised uh, reselecting sitting MPs before getting candidates into constituencies where we didn't have a candidate at all. And the procedures have got longer, more cumbersome, more time-consuming and more expensive for everyone. So I'd want to look at streamlining. I would definitely speed up dealing with complaints because um, they actually are still bogged down. And then on the party democracy review, it has been endorsed by annual conference. So I would, not all of it has been implemented. Uh, and there's a lot of good things in that. But one of the questions I have is over the number of conferences and the number of committees at regional, national and local level. 
I'm all in favour of more democracy, as long as it just doesn't mean more meetings. Um, you mentioned uh, that perhaps more of a, a focus on uh, external campaigning there. And of course, if the uh, pandemic uh, pandemic hadn't happened, uh, we'd be seeing uh, council uh, uh, elections, local elections and, and mayoral elections this year, which have been uh, postponed uh, to next year. So what do you think uh, the Labour Party's main focus should be uh, during next year's local elections? Well, they are local elections, and so it, the focus has to be on local government and in particular, emphasising what the Tory government has done to local councils. Some have lost half their funding, and there is a, a, a struggle going on of perceptions. We need to be absolutely clear that cuts in local services are because local government has been denied any money by central government and that Labour councils are making, Labour councillors are making very difficult decisions with what they have left. And in my own council, Oxford, for instance, one of the problems is that the council um, had a lot of commercial income um, from services and from, um, yeah, and that has, and from business rents, and all of that has collapsed. So I think, party needs to be clear about whose side it's on. I've seen probably as much criticism within the Labour Party of Labour councils as criticism of either Tory councils or the Tory government. And if Labour councils could be run better, that's fine. Then you talk to your local councillors, you find out what the true situation is, and you discuss it locally and you decide what, what they could do better. Um, and councils also need to emphasise all the work they've doing, been doing, particularly in dealing with the coronavirus crisis, where a lot of them are providing services which are the backbone of support for people, shielding vulnerable people uh, and everyone else. And the other set of elections next year are in Wales and Scotland, and... In Wales, Mark Drakeford seems to be doing rather well. Of course, the Scottish and Welsh leaders get the daily press conferences and people seem to be looking at Labour in Wales and liking what they see. Um, Scotland, as I said, is I don't have an answer for that. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast now. It's been uh, great to speak with you, Anne. It's been a very interesting discussion. And I have one uh, final question uh, for you. Of course, we've been discussing uh, the pandemic and we've been discussing uh, coronavirus. And because of that, uh, people haven't been uh, getting out of their houses uh, as much. And this is slowly uh, beginning to change. We're beginning to see uh, an end to the lockdown. So uh, when things are uh, back to normal, when, when, when things aren't as... Um, uh, up in the air as, as, as they are at the moment. What one thing that you haven't been able to do uh, because of the lockdown are you most looking forward to being able to do uh, when you can? Well, <laughs> I'm going to get the blonde put back in my hair in 10 <laughs> days' time. But really, it, it doesn't feel back to normal at all for me. I mean, I'm in my 60s and I think it's um, still, you, you look at the, the statistics for the effect of the virus on different age groups and it is rather different 
if you're 18. So I, I can't see the Labour Party in particular getting back to meetings. Four months ago, we had our AGM. We had over 200 people in a community centre. And um, a lot of them are, you know, not in the first flush of youth. And I cannot see a time when um, that's going to come back anytime soon. And the final thing I would say is that local parties are being very imaginative about meeting remotely. And what's frustrating them, and it frustrates me, is that we are still not allowed to make decisions, discuss resolutions, or all the rest of it. So the party nationally needs to get a grip on that, acknowledge that we'll be meeting remotely for months to come and give us back our, our local democracy. Well, I uh, sincerely agree with you, Anne, and I think uh, a lot of our listeners will agree with you as well. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us, thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. <laughs>